You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. Isaiah 61. Grab your copies of God's Word. Isaiah 61. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab it from the seat back in front of you, or uh, you can Google Bible online. Isaiah 61, and you'll maybe make it there. I don't know what Google will send you to, but you get the idea. We'd love to have you join. We're going to be just in, in really a half of a verse today. So we're excited to, to start our Advent season. Will you pray with me this morning as we open God's Word that He would show us uh, Himself in us. God, we are grateful uh, that you uh, have spoken uh, every Sunday. Just think it's, it's right to start that way in, in gratitude that you, the transcendent, majestic, un, uh, unmatched creator of the universe, chose to make yourself known. You chose to speak into our hearts. You chose to speak in language we could understand. God, would you keep us from... Um, treating your word flippantly or casually. But we understand that it is, it is your very words speaking to us today, as true as it was when they were wit- written, and unchanging for eternity. God, would we relish the opportunity to hear from you today. And, and God, I pray that you would change us today, that we would not desire just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, holding on to your truth tightly. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are starting, uh, this is the first Sunday of our Advent season. And Advent is a, is a time in the church calendar. Uh, it's a season, really, where we celebrate the first Advent or the first coming of the Lord. Uh, and so it, it's, it's a real old uh, church term to describe the season which we all remember that Jesus came and point our eyes towards his return. And so today, today as we think about uh, the Christmas story, our goal, the goal is not to like give you something new. It's not to like uh, uh, wow you with a bunch of new information. It's to remind us of what's always been true. It's to remind us that God became man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross and rose that we might find salvation. And so today is really, this whole season is about reminding ourselves who we are and who God is. This past week, we spent some time uh, putting up Christmas decorations. And it was like the smoothest it's ever gone. You know why? Because we bought one of those trees with the lights already in it. And so, 100%, you don't have to like argue about why I'm doing it wrong for an hour. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what place to put it on. They're already pre-lit, it's great. And we're, we're hanging up the stockings. And I was thinking this week, you know, uh, my, my kids put random stuff in the stockings throughout the, throughout the season, like, you know, notes for mom and dad, wrappers of granola bars, all the things. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to sit on Christmas morning and open them up. And, uh, and for a lot of us, like Christmas is the season that enters into a season of reflection where we think about, oh man, 2024 is just around the corner. And you begin almost just, just kind of happens instinctually. You begin to look backwards at the year of all that's happened, the good and the bad. And I had this moment where I was preparing the sermon and thinking, man, what if, what if on uh, Christmas morning, you, uh, instead of anything good in your stocking, it was just the pieces of paper uh, with things that happened in the year, right? And you, you pulled one out and it's like, oh, I remember that, that was really good. Pulled another one out and you're like, I don't 
want to remember that on Christmas. Pull out another one and say, I don't remember that either. And you begin to pull it out and, and you realize you're stocking your year is this mixture of hardship and joy. And like what if you think about these stockings and you think about your year. You know, I've been reflecting on our year as a church and my year with my family and all of these things. And there have been a ton of great things and a ton of hard things. But what do you do if you're coming into the Christmas season and the things that you remember or the things that you're preparing for aren't full of joy, but you're just in this cloud of sorrow that seems to persist? Or all you can remember from the year is all the things that went wrong or, or, or how, uh, how the life was so hard and you're, you're having a hard time being happy about Christmas. What do you do with sorrow during the season of celebration where everyone has to pretend everything's okay? Right? The, and you pull out these, these pieces of paper from your stocking and they're like news headlines, right? And you read the one that says, man loses daughter in a car accident or woman spends holiday alone again or take another one, man loses job this year, couldn't afford rent or you pull out this one and prodigal son or prodigal daughter still in the far country or you pull out this one that says, woman sick, diagnosis worse or husbands and wives pull them out together and it says husband and wife teetering on the brink. So much of the year, if we reflect, is a mixture of sorrow and joy. And there are profound, profoundly hard memories in a year, full of sadness and anger and disappointment. We, we call, our, our Advent series is called The Thrill of Hope from the song, O Holy Night. And the lyric goes like this, a thrill of hope, comma, a weary world rejoices. And a lot of us kind of come into the Christmas season weary, or we come to the Christmas season full of energy and then it wearies us. So what do you do? Is it possible to rejoice? Is it possible in the weariness of the world, of brokenness, of what's happened to us, of what we've seen, of what we've experienced? Is it possible that weariness can give way to joy? And so I, just for the next four weeks, want to look at three verses in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1 two, and three. That is uh, our text for the next four weeks. Today, uh, all I want to do is I want to ask the question, what would it mean for us to have deep ministry to weary souls, that, that it would be possible to encounter Jesus in this season that wouldn't relieve, that wouldn't like take away pain, that wouldn't relieve the weight of the world, but would allow us in weariness to have a great thrill of hope in who Jesus is and what he's done. So today I want to look at four headlines, four headlines from Isaiah 61. A, 61 verse 1, just half of it. Four headlines from that. And then I want to encourage you to hold on to these truths. The application today is remember, hold on to these things. Don't let go, remind yourself of them. Usually don't apply it up front, but here you are. So I want to read Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 in its entirety. And it'll be on the screens behind me or in your copies of God's word in front of you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." 
Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. So quickly this morning, four headlines from Isaiah 61, verse 1, the first part. The first headline is this. The first headline that comes out of that is, good news comes from God. Good news comes from God. Uh, a while ago, the two, the two major news companies, CNN uh, and, and Fox News, had, had almost parallel taglines. CNN, uh, their tagline was, the most trusted name in news. Okay. Fox News, most watched, most trusted. Now, if you're like me, you had a reaction to one of those statements. <laughs> right? You said, well, I, don't, I can't trust them. They're, they're this, and, and, and they say this, and they have that bend or whatever. For any person or news agency to be trusted, what they're saying, they have to be trustworthy. They've got to be predictable. They've got to be consistent. They've got to be fair. It's the same, same thing for us. If we're going to believe that, that weariness can give way to hope, weariness can give way to joy, we're going to have to believe that the person saying this is trustworthy. Because if we're going to say, listen, it's actually, it's possible for my broken marriage to have redemption because Jesus says so, we're going to have to trust that he's trustworthy. If we're going to trust that the, our prodigal sons and daughters can actually come home, we're going to have to trust what God says. If we're going to trust that God is with us even in the lonely nights where we yearn for companionship, we have to trust who God is first. The person giving the news has to be trustworthy. For the Christian, there's good news in that. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the first part. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Just quickly, if we just observe this small section, if we just take note of what's being, of what's being mentioned, there are three people mentioned in this, short, uh, in this short stanza. There's the Spirit, who we understand is God the Holy Spirit. There's the Lord, which is God the Father. And then there's this person named me. We don't quite know who it is. Uh, a Jewish, and, well, I mean, we know who it is. We'll get there. I'm just... Building drama. Uh, it's Jesus. Drama, there you go. Uh, a lot of uh, Jewish commentators have, have said this was probably Isaiah. This is me, right? And certainly Isaiah did bring hope to the Israelites. Uh, or other, other people have said, well, anointing of the Holy Spirit has happened a few times in the Old Testament, whether it was uh, uh, Moses or Joshua or David or Solomon. We see this, this special uh, anointing of their leadership and giving them uh, super empowerment. We're not totally clear uh, from this passage, but Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, gives us a definitive answer to this. And I'm going to read this. Uh, to you. It's not in, uh, it's not on the slides, but Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So Jesus has just been tested in the wilderness. This is his first kind of act of ministry as he's coming out uh, from, the, from the temptation with Satan, as was his custom. And as was his custom, Jesus, Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So Jesus had this habit of going on the Sabbath uh, in Nazareth. 
to go read scripture. In verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty and to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him Verse 21, and he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus understands himself to be the me of Isaiah 61, sent from the Father, anointed by the Spirit to do those things. If you're curious what this was like, like imagine going to like your 20th high school reunion and then walking in, claiming you were the homecoming king and beating up the biggest bully in town. Like that's, that's the feeling here. This is a really contentious. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Messiah that Isaiah had prophesied some 800 years before. In, in reading this, what I'm saying is, look, we have the full member, all three members of the Godhead. We've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That in this, and this is, this is a biblical theology that, that the church history has affirmed, is that when we say God, what we mean is, what Scripture teaches is, God is one essence with three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they are united and yet distinct without, without, without muddling any of the difference. They are united as one God. And here we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in complete unity moving towards humanity. So I say all of that to ask these questions. What does it mean for us that God sent the Spirit to anoint Jesus for these works? Number one, it means whatever Jesus does is assigned by God. And I think this is important. Jesus on earth doesn't make up anything. That is to say, he doesn't wake up one day and say, I think today I'm gonna heal some lepers. I think today I'm gonna walk on water. You know what would really freak everybody out is if I rose from the dead. Wait till they see that. Everything Jesus does is, is from the will of the Father. He's not influenced by outside sources. God the Father sent God the Spirit to anoint God the Son while he was in the flesh to do the will of the Father. So everything Jesus does in this, in, in this day 61 and in the New Testament is done because the Father has asked him and sent him to do it. The second thing that's important for us here is that whatever Jesus does is empowered by God. In the Old Testament, when we talk about uh, Moses or Joshua or David or Solomon, the ones who, who experienced this anointing, usually what came with it is an empowerment to do the things of God. And we see that with Jesus himself, that he was sent and anointed, uh, retaining divinity in himself, but anointed and empowered with the power of the Spirit as well. And I say all that, like when Jesus brings good news from God, it's good news that comes with God's power. Because I can't think of something worse for someone to promise something they're not able to do. Jesus says, listen, I want to turn your mourning to ashes, but I don't know how. I want to free the captives, but I don't have the key. Jesus brings not only the will of God, but the power of God with him. And so Jesus says it and it happens. Jesus teaches it and it's true. Jesus touches you and you're healed. Jesus says the word and you're saved. Jesus is God's good news because he brings God's power with him. That everything God has said comes to happen. Consider Matthew 1, 17 
and 18. This is the genealogy uh, where if you're, if you're new to the Bible, uh, new to the, to the Christmas story, Matthew 1 is a bunch of names and places no one knows how to pronounce. Uh, and but they serve a purpose. They, they serve a purpose to show us how God's promise spanned the generations through all the different lineages and all the different lines, all the way from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. What Matthew is saying is, when God promised in Genesis 3.15 to bring a savior from Eve, it would took generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. So at just the right time, in just the right place, with just the right person, Jesus would be born according to the promise of God. When God sends good news, it's never an opinion. It's a royal decree. It's going to happen. When God sends good news, it's never in doubt. It's a guarantee. When God sends good news, it's never fake news. It's always true in every way. Good news comes from God and his character has shown over and over and over that he is trustworthy, consistent, and for our good. The first headline uh, that we see in Isaiah is that God, good news comes from God. The second headline is good news for the meek. That as we think about uh, the good news that Jesus brings, there's good news for the meek. Uh, there's this place in the Holy Land uh, called the Door of Humility. And I've got a picture for it. And if you look at the picture, you can see uh, there's this kind of narrow, short door. And, but you can tell that the door has been added afterwards. There used to be this arched doorway. And, and this is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. This is where they believed Jesus was born. And so what they would do is uh, early in the, uh, in the early ADs, uh, 100, 150, 200, 300 AD, they would remember, they would say, this is the place this happened in Jesus' ministry. This was Peter's house. And so this is the church of the nativity, which is built over the place they believed Jesus was born. And so uh, it, that church has existed for many, many, many years. But that door wasn't always that short. The door wasn't always that short. A long time, for a long time, in particular during the Crusades and uh, when there was a ton of change of power in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, what would happen is uh, there would be these uh, princes and kings and dukes and, uh, and, and royal people who thought very highly of themselves, who were very proud of uh, their position, very proud of who they were. What they would do is they would ride up to Bethlehem and they would go inside the church of the nativity. But you know what they would do? They would not dismount their horse. They would walk into, on their horse, into the middle uh, of, of this, of really what is this beautiful church building designed for reverence to God in all of their finery, in all of their, their most, beautiful, uh, most beautiful accoutrements or whatever. And that's how they would come to worship the Lord. And after a while, the owners of the church said, like, this isn't right. That people would come into the house of God so proud. And so what they did to fix that is they built a door that's like five foot five. And you basically, unless you're just abnormally short, probably not the right way to say that, uh, <laughs> you have to duck to go in. And this was to serve so that you, like the, 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 uh, the most, the, even kings would have to bow to go into the presence of God. 
There is in that picture a great spiritual truth that you'll need to bow if you're going to enter the presence of God. That there has to be within you a spirit of meekness and humility. Isaiah continues, the Lord has anointed me, Jesus, to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. One of the great questions you have to ask yourself if you're, if you're reading scripture, and one of the questions that comes up this is, well, who are the poor? What are the poor? And how do I become poor so I can get some of that good news? Because this is the whole thing. If Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor, I don't want to be the rich. I want to be a recipient of that good news. Well, the poor here is not a, a measurement of poverty. It's not a measurement of riches. It's not a measurement of how many stables you got. It's a measurement of character. The word in the Hebrew, poor, uh, that, that's there, is actually related to the word in Hebrew, to bow. And so they grabbed this root. They put it over here and created a word that has to do, that really is this idea of, of spiritual humility and meekness. Spiritual humility and weakness. A position or a posture of bowing. Humble is another word. Meek is another word. Pious is another word. And so, and so what, uh, what, what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm going to bring good news to those who know their need for me. I'm going to bring good news for those who understand their sinful state. I'm going to bring good news for those who look at their life, look at all the efforts they put in, look at, look at everything they've done, and realize that without something else, they're helpless. Jesus is bringing good news to those who realize that eternity lies in the balance. And if left to themselves, they'll spend an eternity separated from God. The poor in this passage do not think of themselves less, like they're not just perpetually down on themselves. That's not what humility is anyway. Humility recognizes that you were created by God, treasured by God, dignified by God, given gifts for his, for his work and for his pleasure and for, and for your good. Humility says, these are mine for the stewarding of God. They're not mine for my own voice or fame. So the poor don't think of themselves less. They think of themselves rightly. They look at who they are and they take an account of, of imperfection. They take an account of how they hurt people and, and what they do uh, and their integrity uh, and their patterns of life and the areas where they are not yet fully formed. The poor don't think they're worthless and have nothing good to do. They realize that they have many things that God has given them, but they are from God and for God. And so the poor live almost in a posture with their heart bowed in reverence towards God not joyless, uh, obligatory obedience, but a life that says, God has created me and the best thing I can do is pour myself out in worship towards him. The poor then live in constant awareness of their need for God. And one of the things, like we just, if we tease this out a little bit more, that the poor understand that, that what really, really matters is not their situation being fixed, like the best thing that God can do for the poor isn't necessarily to fix their marriage, isn't necessarily to give them money for rent, isn't necessarily to make them less lonely or whatever it is. The poor realize the best thing God can do is change my character and not my situation. That holiness is the best and finest goal of the person who is poor at heart. And so Jesus, I mean, it's almost like Jesus stands uh, inside, inside that church and kind of yells, hey, you want to come in? You can come in, but you have to bow. You have to get off your high horse. You've got to let go of how you view life. You've got to acknowledge that the way that you've lived life 
isn't holy, isn't honoring to me. If you want a relationship with me, you don't have to memorize that verse. You don't have to become the best parent. You don't have to give. You don't have to become perfect and to enter the door. He's saying, come as you are, but you better come bowed. But is this how you get to me? And that, in that, the meekness, the meek, the humble, find all that they could ask for, all that they need in Jesus. Blessed are the meek, Matthew 5, 5 says, for they shall inherit the earth. It won't be the powerful or the mighty or the worldly that inherit the earth. It'll be those who know who they are and how mighty Jesus is. It'll be those who have chosen to bow, bow low and be saved. So I just, like the flip side of this is really interesting to me too. Because often you ask yourself what's being said and then what's not being said, right? What's being said here is that if you are poor in spirit, if you are humble, if you are meek, like there's really good news for you. On the flip side, like there is no good news for those of us who live our lives on our high horses today. There's no good news for the arrogant. There's no good news for the prideful. There's no good news for people who think they have it all together. There's no good news for someone who thinks they have no need. There's no good news for those who sit on self-righteous thrones. There's no good news for people who are the hero of their own story. There's no good news for people who live on their high horse. Proverbs 16:5 says this, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. For those of us with hearts that are unbendingly arrogant and prideful. For those of us who are the heroes of our own story, on which Jesus is a footnote in our life. For those of us who self-righteously walk through life with our nose, our nose pointed up and our contempt towards other people. There is no good news for us. Except that Jesus is still accessible to you. You just have to get off your high horse and humble yourself and crouch through the door. Acknowledge your need. Acknowledge your sin. Find forgiveness and peace and eternity. And that's really good news for the humble and really good news for the prideful. Headline number one is good news comes from God. Headline number two is good, there's the good news for the meek. Headline number three is that there's good news for broken hearts. Good news for broken hearts. I found out this week from one of our nurses on staff. Uh, there's only one. And we were talking about, uh, we are talking about people who die of broken hearts. And, and this actually is a thing. Like it's, it's a medical phenomenon. It's not like a thing that just happens at the end of the, the notebook where two people die and it goes to credits, right? Like this is a, it's an actual thing. And it's exactly, it's like I was, I was researching it and, and what, 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 what happens is there's a traumatic emotional event uh, and whether that's losing a partner or a, or a big breakup or you lose your job or there's, there's this thing that happens to you that is deeply stressful. Your body then sends this, this like massive amount of stress hormone to your heart. Now, if your heart is not in good condition, what happens is then one part of your heart swells to make it so that it's hard to pump. And if you have any underlying heart condition, your heart can fail permanently and you die or can cause serious damage. You can die from a broken heart. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. And even there's good news for those of us who live with perpetual broken hearts over expectations not met, over sorrow, over your kids, or trouble in your marriage, or whatever it is that this year has just brought a season of perpetual discomfort and difficulty. 
Isaiah says this, he has sent me, Jesus, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bind up the brokenhearted. My wife uh, is giving my Christmas gift to me early. She's watching Band of Brothers with me. Uh, and if you don't know Band of Brothers, it's a 10-part miniseries that focuses on the European theater of World War II. So I'm, I'm like in peak middle-aged man. It's either the Civil War or World War II, so here we are. Uh, and, and she's watching, and if you don't, it's, 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 it's a terribly well-written show and a ton of violence, and there's this guy named Eugene Rowe, and they call him Doc Rowe. He's from Louisiana, and he's the medic. And he features prominently in like every scene. Because there's a lot of explosions, a lot of gun happening, and, and he'll run up and someone will scream medic and, and he'll stab them with something and then pour Clorox on them or something. I don't know, I'm not a medic, something uh, to, to heal them, right? And then inevitably at some point, in, at some point in, the, in, in the 50 minutes of chaos, he screams, I need a tourniquet, I need a tourniquet. Why? Because someone's bleeding so bad to stop the blood, they gotta take this thing, tie it off so it, it cinches so there's no more bleeding. When Isaiah says, uh, when Jesus really says uh, in Isaiah, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This is the image the Hebrew kind of, uh, kind, of, kind of illustrates. That there is this tightening and binding, not so that the wound is gone, but so the bleeding stops. This is what Jesus does. God has sent Jesus to bind up the wounds. It's important. He's not removing the wounds. Not removing the sorrow. He's just making it so that when we walk through life, we're not bleeding all over ourselves and others. That there is some stability that comes to deepen our soul when Jesus applies the tourniquet. And you know, like, you watch these cop shows or, 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 or Band of Brothers or whatever, and, and, and someone gets shot, what's the first thing they say? Put pressure on it, right? And so someone puts pressure on it, and they go, oh, that feels so great. No, it's the exact opposite, right? I've been shot, and someone says, put pressure on it, and they go, ah! And this is what Jesus does, that, that he comes close to you and begins to bind your soul, not, not healing it completely, not removing it, but allowing your soul to have some stability so that it stops bleeding. What does it mean to be brokenhearted? What does it mean to be brokenhearted? I mean, a, a ton of different things. At the very least, it means to have firsthand experience of the effects of sin in the world. It means to be a victim of someone else's sin. It means to mourn the gravity of your own sin. It means to have tasted the bitterness of the death of a loved one. It means to have felt the heartache and the yearning for your prodigal son or daughter to come home. It means to have felt the deep discord of a broken marriage. It means to have caused someone significant pain and to mourn that. It means to experiencing, having experienced life-altering medical issues. Being brokenhearted is not just about breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It is, it is all of life that we live live in a broken world and at some point you bump into or are experiencing a deep level of brokenness or hardship or sorrow that strikes you so deep that it just feels it is all you are. And in that Jesus draws near. The brokenheartedness is a pain so deep and a sorrow so profound that the normal coping mechanisms don't work. You can't shop away the sorrow you can't eat away the pain. You can't binge watch away the tears. Your soul just feels like it's constantly full and leaking, leaking and leaking hardship. And Jesus binds this 
by doing what a medic on the battlefield does. Can you imagine how crazy it would be? Right. If uh, on the battlefield someone gets injured and they go, hey, we need a medic. And on the other end, the medic goes, I got you. You're healed. But didn't come and actually bind the wound. That'd be the least effective medic in history. Matthew 121. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son, conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That our God, who is transcendent, that just means above and outside of creation, he's the unmatched, majestic ruler over all things. In him, all things have their meaning, their breath. In him, all things have their life. In him, the planets are aligned and they spin. In him, all of creation is sustained. And yet what we find out in Matthew is that this transcendent God becomes man. We call this incarnation. And John says he dwelt among us, or, or in, the, in, the, in the Greek, he tabernacled tabernacled among us to refer to the Old Testament where God was in the tabernacle with his people. Eugene Peterson uh, says of the incarnation, it's like he pitched a tent in the neighborhood. It's like you walk out of your door, wherever you live, and there's a tent in the middle of your front yard, and Jesus is like sipping his coffee. Hey, I just moved in. The nearness of God matters. He doesn't bind up our wounds from heaven. He binds up our wounds next to us. My son, youngest son, woke up. And his leg was hurting uh, in the middle of the night, and he was just a ton of pain. And they were like, okay, tell us what hurts. He says, my leg. Okay, where in your leg? All of it. I mean, this went on for like 30 seconds. Uh, I just kept, buddy, he didn't have the vocabulary to tell me it was his calf or his shin or his knee or any of that. I said, buddy, just... Take your finger and just show me where it hurts. Took his finger and then pointed at his whole leg. It wasn't terribly helpful. <laughs> As if Jesus is sits next to us in our grief. He says, tell me where it hurts. Point to it. Let me put my gracious pressure on that. Let me help stop the bleeding. Look, it hurts, but it helps. Now consider Jesus' compassion you know, Lazarus, his, his good friend, Mary and Martha, Lazarus is sick and they send word for Jesus and he waits three days, waits three days. Lazarus dies uh, and, and Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what the father sent him to do. He shows up and they're in the middle of, they've, they've put Lazarus in the tomb and, and they're just weeping and, and it, is, it, is, it is a hopeless scene and Jesus shows up and what's the first thing he does? It's the shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. Anyone? Jesus wept. That is all of the power to change this, and he's going to. But his first movement towards his people was a gut-level compassion at the loss that they had. He is God. He knows how it's going to end, but he is deeply compassionate towards your pain. He moves towards it. He sees it. He is not indifferent or unconnected. And so Jesus didn't come to make us wound-proof either. This is, this is the part, like if we could all wish for something for Christmas, it'd be, could I be wound-proof? Could, no, could I have no more sorrow? Could I go through the life without, without being broken down? The reality is we will be broken-hearted. We will encounter situations that strike us to the core. It is in those deepest wounds where Jesus and our sorrow meet. And Jesus is, in those moments, God with us in the middle of hardship. He is God with us in the middle of sorrow. He is God with us in the middle of pain. But this is the great thing. If anything shows us... If 
if Isaiah shows us anything, he is God with us, but he is God for us. He moves towards us to bind up the deepest parts of our heart that we have no ability to bind or to stop the bleeding. In deep compassion, Jesus draws near. If these things are true, that good news comes from God and that there's good news for the humble, the meek, and there's good news for the brokenhearted, then it also means for us that there is good news for the future. Good news for the future. We live in this moment where uh, the first advent of Christ has come and uh, he has come, he's lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, all that, and salvation and atonement, all of that has been done. And, and 40 days later, he rose, uh, he rose and ascended to heaven. And the next time we see Jesus will be at his second advent. And so we are in between what is guaranteed salvation, all the work that God has done, all the promises, are, are, all those promises that far have been fulfilled. And there are promises yet to be fulfilled in the second coming. And so part of our job is to look forward and to look towards what is coming, to look towards that guarantee of his return, to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, not as a way to escape it, but as a way to bring God's redemption to, to the fore, to bring God's redemption down from heaven, that all would be made new. And so I want to read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to read it. It's, it's, uh, I think it's on the screens behind me. Then I saw, this is John's vision from God about what happens at the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be with his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Look at that, that for the former things have passed away. Death, sorrow, cancer, pain, crying, mourning, all of that are former things in the future. Former. And he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That will happen. As sure as this happened over here, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, all will be made new, the new heavens, the new earth. Look, hey, we talk about this a lot. Heaven is not your destination, okay? That's not the end of the road. Heaven is the holding place before we get to the new earth, the new creation. Heaven is, is the waypoint to our new bodies. It's the waypoint to the resurrection. All of this is coming true. God has kept his promises in the Old Testament. He's kept his promises in the New Testament. He's kept his promise to us. And he has decreed that he will come. And all of the former things will be former things. I say all of that to say this. This is not as good as it gets. That's an amen. It also means this, that, that this is, think about this, Mike, this is the least amount of joy you will ever have. Like, and there's some really joyful things about the Christian life. But even that, even that, 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 that will be a molehill compared to the mountain of joy when we walk with Jesus and we are made new in the garden. Another way to think about it is our faith by God's power and grace will finally be sight. We're not yet there, but it's coming. So Christian, don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Jesus is coming with a trumpet sound and he's gonna descend and the enemies will be defeated and new earth and new heavens and new earth will descend. So hold fast. Everyone do this with your hands. Do this. 
Maybe just make a fist like you're holding on to something. Hold on to these truths. This is the Advent season. Hold on to Jesus' good news, that he's come for the meek and he's come for the brokenhearted and he's coming back. What hope there is, you can let go now. Metaphorically. Everyone, if we were to go and like poll, everyone has a headline from this year they, they'd rather forget, right? Everyone has a season, a moment, a diagnosis, a, a job. Everyone's got something they don't want, a headline that just plagues them and makes them weary and, and it makes them wonder about the trust. Can they trust God's goodness? Hardships endured in 2023 and the friends who left them, the deaths that were mourned or the job that was lost or the loneliness that was endured, whatever it is. Jesus' arrival, his first advent, and his coming second advent remind us that none of the hardship you experienced is wasted. None of the sorrow, none of the pain is forgotten. No tear, no doubt, nothing is wasted. And all is being made new. Jesus is making all things new, even the worst headlines of your life. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of your creation. When we look at the Old Testament, we look at Jesus and, 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 and how he just comes forth, the, the prophecies and, and how he fits all of them, and yet there's fulfillment to come in his second coming. God, help us to hold tight to what's been done, that we would, that we would take you at your word. God, you are trustworthy and good, and you have shown that. You did send your son. He did live a perfect life. He did die on the cross for our sins. He did rise from the dead. He did ascend into heaven and he will come back. Help us to live with hope, resiliency, and courage in this interim. Help us to walk the valley of our lives with joy. Help us to remember that in, in your economy, in your control, in your ruling, Nothing is wasted for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.